Good morning. morning. Welcome again to our worship service. Today, Pastor Charles is back with us from a mission trip on the other side of the world, and we welcome him back safely, and you give him a nice hand. You probably thought he was going to bring the message this morning, because he is back with us. But things are not always as they appear. Just yesterday, I was watching the Kentucky Derby, and the horse that everybody thought won the race actually did not win the race. Things are not always as they appear. One of my favorite stories is about an elderly lady who was a very wise lady. She attended the midweek Bible study on Wednesday night at her church every week, and she came home one night to a darkened house, and before she could turn the lights on, she was immediately aware of the fact there's a burglar in the house. And so she hollers out as loudly as she can, Acts 2.38. Well, it says, repent and be baptized because of the remission of your sins. So she says, Acts 2.38. The burglar immediately raises his hands, surrenders, gets down on one knee, and stays on that one knee until the police arrive. And when the police got there, one of the policemen said to the burglar, how come you surrendered to that elderly lady all because she quoted a passage of Scripture? And the burglar said, passage of Scripture? I thought she said she had an axe and two thirty-eights. <laughs> Things are not always as they appear. Years ago, two of my favorite missionaries, although I didn't know them personally, but they're still two of my favorite missionaries, Jim and Elizabeth Elliott were serving an uh, Indian tribe down in a remote area of Ecuador. And one day, one of the tribesmen took the life of Jim Elliott. And I'm sure that everybody must have thought, what a tragic waste, giving his life down there for an Indian tribe in Ecuador. But what most of the people didn't realize is, Jim Elliott, when his life was taken, went directly to God in the kingdom of heaven. Elizabeth Elliot continued the ministry and became a prolific writer and speaker for the cause of Christ. And the guy who took his life became a Christian evangelist, spreading the word of God around the world. Things are not always as they appear. They found in one of Jim Elliot's journals this statement. He is not a fool who loses what he cannot keep, but gains what he cannot lose. Things are not always as they appear. When you have your Bibles open, I hope you take your Bibles and open with me to the book of Acts, chapter 7. When you look at Acts, chapter 6 and chapter 7, you see this man, Deacon Stephen, the first deacon ordained by a local church. And you see that Deacon uh, Stephen had several things written about him. For example, in Acts, chapter 6, he is defined as a man full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, full of grace, and full of power. That's quite a description. Wouldn't you like someone to describe you like that someday? There is a person, there is a man, there is a lady who is full of faith, Holy Spirit, wisdom, grace, and power. And now here's this man, Stephen, that you would think God would use for a long period of time. In chapter 7, here's this man, Stephen, standing before the Jewish Supreme Court. And he's being charged with speaking against Moses and God. 
it's likely that no one in that entire audience loved God and Moses as much as Stephen. But he's being charged with attacking Moses and God. The Sanhedrin then did what people often do when they cannot win an argument. They smear the person and make up accusations. So I ask you, how do you think Stephen's going to respond to this? False arguments, false accusations. How's he going to respond? Is he going to respond in anger? Is he going to capitulate? Is he going to crumble? Is he going to give up? No, actually, Stephen takes everyone down memory lane and gives a beautiful, a beautiful picture of God's message through the Old Testament. The Old Testament is really a history of the Hebrew people. And in Acts chapter 7, he gives a beautiful history of how God has been working through the Hebrew people. And in doing so, he teaches us some great lessons about enduring trials. Now, for Stephen, in Acts chapter 7... He is before the Jewish Supreme Court, so it's a religious trial and it's a civil trial. So the trial for Stephen was an actual legal trial. For you and for me, we may have trials that are not legal trials, but they're real trials. They're real challenges. They're all kinds of trials. As a matter of fact, if you're reading in the book of James in chapter 1 verse 2, it tells us when trials come. doesn't say if you're going to have a trial, but when you have trials. And I suggest to you that every one of us in this auditorium either are going through some trials in our life or we are about to go into some trials in life. We never know when they're going to come, from what direction. I'm fairly certain that Stephen had no idea when he was ordained as a deacon in the church, that he was going to have to go on trial because of his faith, because of his love of God's Word. And so sometimes trials come when you least expect it. Trials come in all lives and in many different ways. For some people, it may be in the form of sickness or an accident. For some people, it might be a financial setback. For some people, it might be marital strife. For some people, it might be a problem with children or a problem in the family or a problem at job. But rest assured, there will be some trials. There will be some challenges in all of our lives. And so in Acts chapter 7, I believe that we can learn some great lessons from Stephen about enduring trials that come in so many different ways. What lessons can we learn? Well, here's lesson number one from Acts chapter 7. When enduring trials, it is helpful to remember past experiences with God. Isn't that true? All of us have had some trials or challenges in our lives. But in this trial, Stephen's defense is a history of the Hebrew people. He begins to recite how God's been working in their life, how he worked in their life in the past, and how he's, how he's working in their life right now. As a matter of fact, chapter 7, verse 1, the high priest said, Are these things so? In other words, are these accusations being made against you true? Is this, is this true? Is this so? And then Stephen takes them down memory lane and reminds him of how God has worked through the Hebrew people. In this trial... He talks about Abraham, Joseph, and Moses in verses 1 through 34. And then in verses 35 through 50, he spoke of Israel's apostasy or the abandonment of their faith. 
And then, suddenly, in the midst of this trial, in the midst of his going through the Old Testament, when Stephen applied the nation's history to Israel's rejection of the Messiah, suddenly there was instant rage brought against Stephen. Look at it with me in verse 51 through 53. We might ask ourselves, why would God allow this to happen to this person, Stephen? It seems like he had so much going for him. There are so many ways God could use his life. Why would God allow this to happen? And I suggest to you that what Satan meant for evil, God turns into good. Let's learn the lessons from the life of Stephen. First of all, in verses 51, uh, 51 through 53, we have this account. Stephen, in his very nice, subtle manner, says, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. So you, you can just imagine this crowd around the supreme uh, court of the Hebrew people, the Sanhedrin, and Stephen is saying, you are doing exactly as your fathers and the forefathers did. And he goes on to say, uh, in verse 52, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers uh, and murderers you have now become. You have received the law as ordained by angels, and yet you did not keep it. Suddenly, Stephen responds, uh, responds against the charges made to him by turning on his accusers. They were the ones who were actually disobeying God because they had rejected the Messiah. Let me ask you this morning, this Sunday morning, when we're here in a peaceful setting, in our freedom of worship, think about your past experiences with God. When a trial invades your life, it's a good idea to think back the times when you had interaction with God. Think about the time of your conversion experience, the time when God changed your life and you received Christ as your Savior and you knew that you were born again, you were born from above. Think about your salvation experience this morning. Think about those moments of interaction with God when you knew that God was speaking directly to you. Maybe you were reading the scripture, maybe you were in a worship service. Maybe you were someplace out in the community, but something happened. There was an event. There was something said. There was something done, and it reminded you that God is there. Remember those past experiences with God when enduring trials. That's what Stephen tells us. Lesson number two, enduring trials. It's helpful to remember the teachings from God's Word. One of the things that we learn about Stephen is this guy knew the Word of God. He knew the Old Testament, and he knew how to relate it to what Christ has done in the New Testament. Stephen gave this long memory lesson about how God had interacted with the Hebrew people in the Old Testament, brought them up to date, and then reminded them of the good news, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Stephen recounts the history of the Hebrew people. And then also, if you think about Jesus, when he was in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. What did Jesus do when temptations rose up? He was quoting from the Word of God. Satan was misquoting. Jesus was quoting from the Word of God. When I think about enduring trials, and I think about it's helpful to go back and, and remember what the Word of God says, 
I often think about the Apostle Paul and, and how it relates to you and I today. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, verse 7, the Apostle Paul was telling all of us that uh, there was a thorn in his flesh. And that thorn in his flesh was constantly irritating, constantly bothering him. I can use my imagination and, and just know that everywhere he traveled, and every time he was teaching or preaching, there was this thorn in his flesh. What was it? Well, some people think that he may have had malaria, which was a common seacoast disease. Some people think he may have had poor eyesight, going back to his salvation experience. Whatever it was, he didn't identify it. But whatever it was, Paul had this thing bothering him, this thorn in the flesh. So how's he reacting to it? Does he react in anger? Does he react in animosity? Does he react in rejection? No. Paul says that when you have this thorn in your flesh, when you're going through a trial, when you have a difficulty in your life, when, when something is going on in your body system, and you ask God to take it away, God's going to do one of two things. For the child of God, he's always going to do one of two things. God's either going to remove it, and he has often done that in all of our lives, or he's going to sustain us. And Paul says, I know that I will be sustained because of the grace of Almighty God. Actually, God reminds all of us of his presence all the time. And um, when you think about the way that uh, Paul was interacting with the Spirit of God, he's reminding us what it's like to be a part of the family of God. One of the great benefits of being Christians is that we are part of the family of God. We're not just a part of the worldwide family of God. We're a part of a local family of God right here in the local church. And I suggest to you that these are things going through the mind of Stephen. He is reminded of past experiences with God. He's reminded of what the Word of God has to say. And then something amazing takes place. The apostle, uh, Stephen, the Deacon Stephen is there before the Jewish Supreme Court, and even though he's on trial for his faith, and he's on trial for his life, he stands boldly for the cause of Christ. He stands clearly for the cause of Christ. He presents the Word of God. Now, let me ask you a question today. How is it possible for someone standing before the Supreme Court, the, for the first time in his life, no doubt, He's standing before the Supreme Court, and he's standing, and he's being accused, uh, uh, he, he's being charged with uh, false faith, he's being charged with uh, accusations and attacks on Moses and God. How is it that Stephen can be so strong in the midst of those kind of conditions? One of the things that tells me is, it is possible under very difficult circumstances to stand strong for the cause of Christ. Now, what's the secret? How was Stephen able to do that? I think the answer is found in Acts chapter 6, verse 5. Acts chapter 6, verse 10. Acts chapter 7, verse 55. Those three verses all say the same thing. They say that Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. Ah, there's the key. There's the answer. He was able to stand strong even through difficult situations because he was filled by God's Spirit. And the interesting thing is, God wants every one of us to be filled with His Spirit. As a matter of fact, there is a direct command in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. 
where the scripture says, Be ye filled with God's Spirit. And so it is God's desire for all of us to be filled with His Spirit. The question is, what does it mean to be filled with God's Spirit? Well, there are some who take the theology. In order to be filled with God's Spirit, you have to have a certain spiritual gift. But that theology is false because the Bible says we don't all have the same spiritual gifts. So it certainly can't be a mandatory requirement that you have a specific spiritual gift to be filled by God's Spirit because we don't all have the same spiritual gifts. So then what does it mean to be filled with God's Spirit? How do you know if you're filled with God's Spirit? You can't see Him. You can't reach out and touch Him. How do you know that you have the Spirit of God living in you? And how do you know that you can be filled with God's Spirit? Well, we know it on the authority of God's Word. That several things take place at the point of salvation. When a person receives Christ as Lord and Savior, good things happen. Number one, all of our sin is forgiven. He paid the price. It's paid for. All of our sin is forgiven, cleansed, and washed away. But then, number two, the Spirit of God comes and indwells our bodies. And so our bodies become temples for the Holy Spirit. And so if you are a child of God, good news, the Spirit of God dwells in you. But that does not mean that we are always filled with God's Spirit. So what does it mean then to be filled with God's Spirit? The best way that I know to illustrate it is, uh, is this. If I had a pitcher of water and I set it down on the platform, and I took an empty glass, and I set the empty glass down on the platform, and then I take the pitcher of water, and I start pouring that pitcher of water into the empty glass, what's going to eventually happen? The glass is going to be filled with water, and then it's going to spill over. I think that's what it means to be filled with God's Spirit. The Spirit of God fills our life, He fills our mind, and suddenly the Spirit of God spills over into our attitudes. The Spirit of God spills over into our relationships. The Spirit of God spills over into our decisions. The Spirit of God spills over into the way we live our lives and the way we conduct ourselves with one another. The Spirit of God takes control of our mind and our body and our life to the end that we can glorify Christ. And that's what's happening here in the life of Stephen. Even as he is enduring this massive trial before the Supreme Court, he is filled with God's Spirit. He's the calm one in this situation. And what we're going to discover is what Satan meant to be evil, God is going to turn into something good. Well, as you look at it, and you think about what God did in the life of Stephen, and uh, we learn the lesson of enduring trials, there's a third lesson that I would call your attention from Acts chapter 7. When enduring trials, and again, we all have some, not necessarily civil or religious, but we all have some kind of trials that invade our life. When enduring trials, it is always helpful to remember that God is with us. Isn't that a good thing? To always know that, again, that's another one of the huge advantages of being a Christian that the non-Christian world hasn't quite figured out. The fact, not just that we're saved and going to heaven, but that God dwells within us. And whatever the situation, whatever the conditions, we know that we are not alone. God is right there. 
when we repent of our sin and turn to Christ, we become a part of God's family. And He is always going to be with us. Several things I would call your attention. Look with me at verses 54 through 60. In this passage, notice what it says. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. They began gnashing their teeth at Him. And being full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God. What a sight he saw. What must have been on his mind? Look what he was thinking about. Look what he was seeing in the midst of this situation. And he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and they covered their ears, and they rushed at him with, with uh, one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's an extremely important verse of Scripture. We'll come back to it in a moment. Then they went on stoning Stephen as he called to the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. So many lessons for us to learn right here. In this experience, Stephen is not focused on himself. He's not focused on his conditions. He's not focused on the situation. He's focused on God's presence. How can you do that in the midst of that kind of turmoil? Because he's filled with God's Spirit. And notice what the Scripture says. He prays, and then he falls asleep. Stephen knew that death was not a conclusion, but it's a transition. Death is a time of moving forward. It doesn't end the life. It just takes us to the next life for those of us who are born again by the grace of God. When you look at this experience, there's several things I want to call your attention to. First of all, I want you to notice the presence, the clarity, and the peace exhibited by Stephen in the midst of this extreme turmoil. His mind is on the things of God. Perhaps Stephen was reminded of the time when Jesus was on the cross. And he issued seven statements from the cross, but the first and the last statements were actually the statements that Stephen had on his mind. The first and the last statements that Jesus gave from the cross were prayers. And this statement that Stephen is giving at the time when he's being stoned and he's being killed is also a time of prayer. So God's on his mind. Uh, Jesus is on his lips. He's thinking not just about past experiences with God, but he's thinking about the fact God's with him right now in this situation. And then notice something. They laid the robes to a young, by a young man named Saul. That's his Hebrew name. We know him best by his Gentile name. It seems to me, in reading the rest of the book of Acts, that this experience was an amazing, profound, deep experience in the life of Saul. I don't think he ever forgot it. I think he was remembering what uh, Stephen said while he was being stoned. The reason I think that is, Luke is the one that wrote the book of Acts, and Luke would have gotten the message from Paul himself. So I think, uh, I think Stephen is remembering, or Paul, Saul is remembering the experiences of Jesus on the cross. He's having a time of prayer, and then he just falls asleep. But Saul's life is never going to forget this experience. And Saul, a short time later, 
is going to be dramatically transformed into a great servant of Christ. He's going to become a missionary to the world. In fact, God, through the Holy Spirit, is going to give us 13 of our New Testament books through the life and writings of this man, Paul. And it goes right back here. Saul was there when Stephen was being stoned. So, again, what Satan meant for evil, God's going to turn into something good. Things are not always as they appear. It seems to me, in this life, with all of its unjustness, with all of its inhumanity to humanity, with all of its challenges, with all of its daily grind and difficulties, which can come from so many different directions and unexpected sources, if this life were the only existence that we have, then we could complain and focus on its unfairness. But this life is not all that we have. This life that you and I are now living is a foundation. This, this life that you and I are now living is a prelude to the life to come. God has a whole eternal life planned for you and for me, and when we know Christ is our Savior, He's going to bring it to pass. What Satan intends to be evil, God's going to turn it into something that is good. I'm reminded that on June the 18th, 1815, there was a very decisive battle that was fought in a place called Waterloo, Belgium. Now, if you were traveling to Waterloo, Belgium today, you would find that it's just a large open field and there's a huge mound commemorated to, to this battle. But at the Battle of Waterloo, we find that uh, France, under the leadership of General Napoleon and their armed forces, have taken over much of Europe. And during the Napoleonic Wars, his, uh, his goal was to take over all of Europe. So now comes the forces of England, and they're led by General Wellington. And these two forces come together there at Waterloo. So imagine what a battle that must have been. You had the forces of England, led by General Wellington. You had the forces of France, led by Napoleon. And the outcome of that battle was going to determine the future of England. You can imagine all the people in England throughout the countryside and in the towns, the villages and cities, they were all concerned, what's going to happen? Is Wellington going to win? Is Wellington going to be defeated? What's going to happen in that great battle? Of course, back in 1815, they didn't have all the media that we have now, and so they were anxiously awaiting the results. Finally, there was a sailing ship that came close to England, and with coated flags, they began to give the message of what happened there at Waterloo. And the coded flags began, and the signal master was on top of Winchester Cathedral, and he saw the signal, and the signal came through, Wellington, and then the other word, Wellington, defeated. Well, that brought sadness and gloom throughout all of England. Wellington, defeated. We've lost the battle. What's going to happen to our country? What's going to happen to our family? What's going to happen to the rest of the world? Wellington has been defeated. A couple of hours later, the fog lifted. And suddenly the signal master could see the whole message that was being flagged. And the whole message was, Wellington defeated the enemy. Totally different situation. Totally different atmosphere. Suddenly the gloom turned to joy. And they realized, Wellington 
has defeated the enemy. Go back to the time of Jesus when he was there on the cross. And when Jesus was crucified, placed in a tomb and buried. It doesn't take much imagination to realize Satan must have thought, finally, I've won this battle. Satan must have thought, that's the death of Jesus. He's defeated. The message is defeated. It's dead. It's gone. The disciples must have thought, the message is defeated. It's dead. It's gone. On the third day, as prophesied, he arose. And he reminds us all that we have a living Savior. He is the Lord. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He not only was crucified and buried, but he rose again. And then just to be sure that everyone was aware of the fact that the Savior had risen from the grave, he ministered on the earth for another 40 days, and the scripture says there were over 500 eyewitnesses to the resurrected life of Jesus prior to his ascension back to the Father. We have a living Savior. Death is swallowed up in victory. Thanks be unto God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What seemed like defeat was actually a victory. Things are not always as they appear. Sometimes. You may be going through a difficult day. As a matter of fact, I'm very confident some of you are going through a difficult day right now. But take heart. We have a living Savior. He's right here. He's alive. He's in charge. He's the Messiah. And somehow, some way, God can take something which appears to be a real trial, a difficulty, a problem, and turn it into something beautiful and good. He did it in the life of the Savior. He did it in the life of Stephen. He can do it in your life. The scripture says, Jesus arose. Satan is defeated. The disciples are transformed. And the word of God is passed down to you and to me. Let's bow in prayer. The question remains, what will we do with it? Much of the world is unaware of it. People that we know are not convinced of it. So the question is, what will we do in our day, in our generation, with the words that Christ has given to us? Even in the midst of difficult circumstances, Christ can do powerful things in all of our lives when we're committed to Him. With your head bowed and your eyes closed, let me just say, if you've never trusted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, this would be a tremendous time to do it. What a great moment for you. Accept Christ, repent of your sin, accept God's grace, turn to Him as your Savior. Make a public profession of your faith in Jesus Christ. What experiences have you had with God? That's your first one. If you're living anywhere in this area and you're looking for a church home, it's likely that you're not here by accident. Maybe God wants you to come and unite with this church on this day. We welcome that decision on your part. Whatever decision God leads you to make, we invite you to make it today to His honor, to His glory. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have the 
uncanny and unique ability to take something that appears to be wrong and evil and turn it into something beautiful and powerful. I pray right now in the name of Christ and the presence of your Spirit that you would guide all of our hearts and minds and that our lives, our testimonies, what we say and how we live, how we conduct ourselves, where we go, what we take in, what we do, may it all be done to your honor, to your glory. And any decision that needs to be made today, we pray that your spirit will prompt them to make it. Again, to your honor and glory, to the strength of your church body. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. As we sing our invitation, I'll be right here at the front if you have a decision to make. We invite you to come as we sing.